0: Good morning, everybody. Thanks for being here today. Um, we are in a summer sermon series called Elijah, Elijah and Elisha. And we are in First and Second Kings. And we want to look at these two prophets, but uh, we also kind of really want to look at the work of God. And so we put a subtitle on it that it is the naturally supernatural work of God. And by that we mean that we want to see the, both the, the miraculous, but also the everyday humanity of these prophets, and see how God works in the midst of their everydayness, their their, their normality, and not just this, uh, this super. Uh, I just watched Incredibles 2 yesterday, so they're not just supers, right? They are they are normal. Uh, servants of God that have been raised up for particular purposes. And, and so each week we're looking at God's big work, but we're also looking at their humanity, the humanity of these, these prophets. And um, we want to look at the, the faithful love of God and his power and his grace. We want to see how everything points toward Jesus um, throughout Scripture. And we want to see what are the parallels and the applications to our own, our own lives, our own stories. And so a couple of weeks ago, we looked at this, the overall storyline, what's, what's going on in 1 Kings, because we, we picked it up uh, in chapter 17. So we did a really quick synopsis of Solomon to Ahab, and just to see the chaotic mess that Israel is in when Elijah comes on the scene. This is from 1st Kings 16. It says, in the 38th year of Aza, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Amri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over, over Israel 22 years. Ahab uh, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him, and that's a big statement because a lot of evil was done before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. And he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. He took evil to another level. He uh, served 22 years as king, and under his rule, there was some stability because he married the Phoenician princess Jezebel. And so there was economic stability and there was military stability, but he was just ruthless. Under Jezebel and Ahab, you went from this, you can serve God and serve all of these other idols to, no, you can't serve God anymore, just Baal. And uh, last week, our friend Shane shared that everything doesn't get better overnight, that God is at work even in the midst of the dark days using unlikely people in unlikely places, but it is his work and he calls us to participate in it. So that theme carries through today in one of the most dramatic and in, in oft-repeated stories in Scripture. And whether you've heard this a hundred times or this is the first, my heart, my prayer is that I, I want us to look specifically at the way God works today. And so here are, here are five ways that I think this text brings out the way that God works. Um, subversively, can you put that next slide up, please? subversively behind the scenes, as well as dramatically on center stage, that God works through the simple and confident obedience of his servant. We're going to see how he answers prayer both immediately and incrementally, how he works his justice and extends grace, and how even this story, um, hundreds of years before Jesus, points toward the atoning work of Jesus. And so that's where we're going, okay? All right. Um, do you like movies? Good. Uh, there is a cinematic device uh, called um, Prolipsis. And it is, it is uh, flash forward. And you've seen this in movies and TV shows. Uh, uh, Psych used to do this all the time. Where they start with this scene, and you, you see this scene laid out, and you don't know what in the world is going on. And then it gets to the end of that scene, and it says, previously that day, or the day before, or three years before. So I want to do that with this scene, okay? So so use your imagination a bit, okay? The, The screen opens with this valley littered with bodies. Hundreds of people lie where they were killed. And the camera zooms over them and toward this mountain. And as the mountain comes closer, it gets to the base of the mountain, and off to the right you see a king with his entourage having a feast in complete silence. And the camera moves up the mountain to the very peak of the mountain and the very peak of the mountain it is this smoldering there is still some some remnants of of a charred altar and next to that altar there is this wild-looking man that is on his knees with his head between his knees and he is praying and he looks up and he he points out to the west and his assistant is over on the edge of this peak and his assistant is looking out toward the Mediterranean Sea and the wild man says, do you see anything yet? And the assistant says, I see a small cloud the size of a man's hand appearing over the sea. And the wild man says, go tell the king to get his chariot and leave now. And then the camera shifts to the mountain. And over the mountain, you see this cloud begin to engulf the entire mountain peak and it gets bigger and gets darker and lightning bolts are flashing and thunder is rolling and out of this this haze, out of this cloud, you see this chariot coming toward the camera. And it is increasing speed and the, the look on the king's face is frantic And as it comes toward the camera, suddenly the wild man, the prophet, appears next to the chariot, not in a chariot, but running on foot. And he runs past the horse and the chariot and is coming toward the camera and it goes to black. And then these words appear on the screen. The previous day. The back story is 1 Kings 17:1. It says, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. For three years, No rain, no precipitation, which led to a severe famine, which led to severe suffering throughout Israel. Baal, the God that Jezebel and Ahab served, the the God that was endorsed by royalty, the God that was worshipped throughout Israel instead of Yahweh, the true God, that God, Baal, was the storm God the God of fertility. And so, not so ironically, he hadn't done much about the famine. Baal's reputation is on the line. And so God's pronouncement through Elijah that there would be no rain was a direct challenge to the promises of Baal. A couple of weeks ago, we read this in Deuteronomy. It says, be careful or you will be enticed. This is from chapter 11 of Deuteronomy. Be careful, you'll be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. And that's what he's coming about. Because of their idolatry, God said there will be no more rain. It's for three years. First Kings 18. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn there. We're going to do, go through that whole chapter today. First Kings 18 says, After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. And this is how it went down. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and the day before the storm, Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. And the the narrator of the story says, Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. So Obadiah was basically the CFO of, of Israel, the head administrator for King Ahab. And much like Daniel, he found himself uh, under a king who was evil, but constantly in a place where his first loyalty is to God. Obadiah was a devout believer. and So the, the narr- narrator gives this story about giving some context to the character of Obadiah. He had taken a hundred prophets that Jezebel was going to kill and had hidden them in caves. Obadiah feared God. He believed, he worshipped, he was devoted to God and at risk to himself, great risk. He put that devotion into action. And he he subverted the queen's uh, command. And the queen's plans to get rid of, the, of anybody in the land who worshiped Yahweh instead of Baal. This is the first thing we see about God. Is that sometimes God upends evil in a, in a powerful, dramatic, firebomb-on-the-mountain kind of way that we're going to see in just a few minutes. But sometimes God upends evil in subversive and subtle and unnoticed ways, like Obadiah or Esther or Daniel, from the inside out. God uses all kinds of people to accomplish his work. And sometimes we get gift envy, you know? We, we want to be the call-down-fire-from-heaven guy. We want that kind of press. When, when God is calling us simply to be faithful in the everyday, he wants us to be faithful. He's calling us to be faithful in the subversive work of the kingdom. That is always a challenge to the culture around us, to be in the world but not of it, Jesus says. Verse 5, Ahab had said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land they were to cover. Ahab going in one direction, Obadiah in another. So we have this Obadiah, the CFO, right? He is this righteous, God-fearing man serving an evil, God-hating king. And the contrast between the two men is is stark. Ahab wants to save mules and horses. It's all about economics. Obadiah risked his life to save 100 prophets of God. Verse 7. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized Elijah, and he bowed down to the ground and said, Is it really you, my lord Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master Elijah is here. What have I done wrong? (laughs) Asked Obadiah that you you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death. As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or a kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. But now, now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, 50 in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now, now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He will kill me. So Obadiah is bold enough to risk his life and secretly rescue 100 prophets, but but it doesn't mean that he's completely fearless. What Elijah is proposing is a death sentence. It wasn't the Elijah is here part that worried Obadiah so much. It was the Elijah is here, and then the spirit will whisk you away to who knows where, and so when we come looking for you, you won't be here, and I will die. That's the part that worried Obadiah. So Elijah reassures him, verse 15, as the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah, and when he saw Elijah, he said, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have, you have abandoned the Lord's commands. You have followed the Baals and now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah with you who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And Elijah went before the Lord and said, How long will you waver between two options? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God... Follow him. Why were the people so drawn to Baal worship? Well, it was endorsed by the king. And with power is per- persuasiveness. And so if you wanted to be on the king's or queen's good side, you would worship who or whatever they worshiped. Also, Baal had, worship had been around for quite some time. When, when Joshua and the people first came across the Jordan River into the Promised Land, they found Baal worshipers. So there was some history to Baal worship, but there was also relevance. I mean, think about it just for a second. You were mostly driven by, by your crops, right? As your crops went, so did your life. So here's this, this idol, this, this Baal, who is promising good crops, fertility. And how you worshiped this particular idol was basically a sex cult. And so, so appealing to sensuality and to, to uh, the promise of economic stability. There was relevance to this idol. So it came down to this question. This challenge came down to the question of who is the real God? If it's God, Yahweh, then follow him. If it's Baal, then by all means, follow him. With belief comes commitment in discipleship. There is no passive lip service when it comes to following after whatever God we are going to follow after. Dale Davis said, Yahweh himself will not allow you the comfort of such detachment. Where we say, yes, I believe in, in that there is a God, but I'm going to live my life however I want to live my life. And that doesn't work like that. Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, he must deny himself and take up the cross and follow. That there is all-in commitment when it comes to following and believing Yahweh. And so Elijah just poses the question, who is the real God? And whoever is the real God, go after him with everything that you have. A couple of other things about this challenge. Mount Carmel is the center of Baal worship. And so this is, this is Baal's home turf. This is home court advantage, right? God loves uneven odds. Home court advantage of Baal 450 or 850 to 1. And let's throw on uh, dousing um, the handicap of, of water-soaked altar. Those are, those are God's kind of odds. And God doesn't need religious fervor to show up. The prophets of Baal spend, spend all day wailing and cutting themselves to get their God's attention, but but we're going to see Elijah is simple and straightforward and earnest and committed. Verse 21, Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two options? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing, which is really telling. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets, so here's the deal. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bowl given them and prepared it. And then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. And at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. I love this. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. That deep in thought, another translation says occupied. And occupied? Do you know, you know when you go to a restaurant or you're at a festival and there's a, there's those those porta-potties and... It says occupied. That's what Elijah is saying. (laughs) Maybe Baal's on the toilet. Maybe you should yell a little louder. He can't hear you. Maybe he's busy traveling. Maybe he's sleeping. So they shouted louder, and they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice all day long. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here. And they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two sails of seed. And he arranged the wood, and he cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. And the water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all of these things at your commands. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice on the wood and the stones and the soil and licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This is one of the most famous scenes in all of scripture. When I was in college, um, I grew up at this children's home in Oklahoma in one summer the children's home sent me to a bunch of camps and vacation Bible schools all over the country, which was a really fun job. And so I found myself at a, a church camp in Mississippi. And uh, that really doesn't mean anything to the story, except to give you some context of where I was in the deep South in Mississippi. And um, every week they would have a, a Bible drama night. And so if you've been to church camp, you know that they usually have some like teams of kids, and so, so I had this team of kids, and they were like fifth and sixth graders, and and I thought we should do this story, okay? So they were excited about it, and so, um, so we did the Bible drama down in this area where there was already this campfire, this kind of fire pit. And so I thought this would be fun, and so, so it came t- turn for. You know, our turn, and, and we, we made this altar out of cardboard boxes and, um, and then we had, you know, the prophets of, of Baal kind of dancing around the boxes and, and calling uh, for, you know, Baal to bring down fire from heaven and, and he didn't make them cut themselves, you know, I'm, I'm responsible, <laughs> I know my limits. And, um, and, so, and then it came down time for Elijah, and Elijah's mocking them, you know, having a good time. And then it's Elijah's turn, and so we kind of use the same altar. And so there was all of this, these cardboard boxes, and he said, bring on the water. And so the, the prophets of Baal bring out these big, huge buckets, five-gallon buckets of water, except it's not water, it's gasoline. <laughs> And they douse the altar, all the cardboard boxes. And then I had strung up a zip line up the hill to the dining hall roof. And this is just after dark, and so it's really dramatic, you know? And, and uh, so there's, a, there's one of the other counselors up on the roof, and he lights a gas-soaked rag. And it comes zipping down the zip line, calling fire from heaven, and it hits the altar. There are some things that I regret in my life. (laughs) This was one of them. Uh, It didn't exactly explode, but there was definitely a huge fireball. And and it it singed some of the kid's hair, and it was... (laughs) It was, it was before, you know, I would be in jail if this happened now, but this was back in the day. We just chalked it up to good fun. But it was, it was dramatic. Dramatic. This is dramatic. Elijah calls fire from heaven, and fire comes from heaven and totally engulfs the whole altar, licks up the water. And if that was the end of the story, it'd be, wow, God is powerful. But then this next story, sometimes is the kind of story in the Old Testament that makes us a bit squeamish. Verse 40. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away, and they seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And now we pick up with our original scene. 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah slaughtered, put to death. One commentator said Kishon's slaughter was not an act of personal revenge but of capital punishment in line with the Torah. Torah being the law, the Old Testament law handed down to Moses. Deuteronomy 13 talks about punishment for apostasy. Apostasy meaning turning our back on the true God and going after false gods. That God said there is punishment for that. In Jeremiah chapter 19, God says through Jeremiah, For they have forsaken me and made this a place of foreign gods. They have burned sacrifices in it to gods that neither... They nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah ever knew, and they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as offerings to Baal, something I did not command or mention, nor did it even enter my mind, this kind of evil. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call this place Topheth or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter." Part of Baal worship was child sacrifice. And all throughout the Old Testament, you know, God puts up with a lot, but seems to always draw the line there. And so this is punishment. This is God's wrath poured out. This is God making good on his promises. Sin running after idols. Whatever form those idols take, that That is a big deal to God. And so here we see God making good on his promise of justice. And then we see God making good on his promise of mercy and grace. Verse 41, Elijah said, Ahab, go eat and drink for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And when he went up and looked, he said, there is nothing there. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, the servant reported a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds and the wind rose. A heavy rain started falling and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. And the power of the Lord came on Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Ahab eats and drinks. Elijah prays. Elijah commands the king and then he goes to the mountain and he prays as was his norm. Over and over again, we see Elijah reduced to the helplessness of prayer. He prays for life. He prays for fire. He prays for rain. He's begging God to do what only God can do. Elijah is constantly in over his head there is this perpetual inadequacy and there's this perpetual confidence of God's adequacy and that is really the nature of prayer it's realizing that God is completely consistent that God is completely adequate that God is completely powerful that God makes good on his promises and then in our inadequacy and in our helplessness and in our despair and in our confidence in God's adequacy, we pray. Elijah intercedes on behalf of Israel. God had, had promised, verse 1 of chapter 18, that it would rain And now Elijah prays for God to fulfill his promise. God's will was rain, but God's will was carried out through Elijah's prayer. Prayer is the instrument, is the the medium of God's plans. I like the word medium, not in a a spiritualistic kind of way, but in an art, artistic kind of way. Uh, there are, in the midst of lots of engineers and scientists, there are a few artists here at Purdue. And um, I always ask, what, what's your favorite medium? Meaning, uh, do you like to use, you know, acrylics or oil or charcoal or watercolors or mixed media? And God's medium For accomplishing his will, I think one of his favorite mediums, his favorite forms of art, is the prayers of his people. That we get to participate. He isn't limited to those prayers, but he delights to work through them. We take his promises and turn them into prayers in order that his promises may come to pass. So Elijah says... Look out at the sea to his servant. Nothing. Six times nothing. On the seventh time, there is a cloud forming over the sea. This is an interesting thing about prayer. When Elijah prayed for God to bring down fire upon the altar, the the answer was immediate and dramatic. But when Elijah is praying for rain, the answer is incremental and extended. There's no cookie-cutter approach to prayer. And part of that is just mystery. (laughs) That's not something to, to figure out, the formula for prayer. For, for God to answer something immediately, or for God to take months or years in the midst of our own, our own despair and our own hurt and pain for, for him to answer. Ultimately, he, his answer is yes in Jesus. But for some answers to some prayers, we won't see that answer in the form that we wish or even in this life which really takes us into the depths of faith and trust trusting God's sovereignty and but it, trusting his goodness and so this prayer is an incremental prayer Ronald Wallace is another commentator. It says, Israel is to learn again this day that the God who sends fire to convert their hearts will also send rain to refresh and feed their bodies. Yahweh is the God of the spectacular and of the routine who sends fire and food. This really is a, is a picture of prayer for us. And I, I want us to go to the New Testament just for a minute. James chapter 5. Is anyone among us suffering or in trouble? Let them pray. Are you, are you happy? Are you sick? Are you, are you in sin? Pray. Because prayer is effective that God hears and acts through this medium of prayer. And, and then in verse 16, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Because the effective prayer of a righteous person is powerful. Prayer of a righteous person is effective. James's concern is not how prayer is made effective, it's that prayer is effective. And then he uses Elijah to show how. (laughs) Elijah was a human being even as we are. He prayed earnestly. Does it mean that Elijah was righteous, and because he was righteous, his prayers worked? And so we should try to attain to this super status of of Elijah-type righteousness so that our prayers will be effective? That's not what James says. It says, James, um, James says, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly. He was a, he's a man. He, his nature was like our nature. And being a man like you and, you know, man in, you know, the general terms. Being human like you and I are. Most of us are that. He, he prayed and God heard. James doesn't say for us to be like Elijah for our prayers to be answered, but that Elijah was like us and his prayers were answered. Jonathan Parnell says, Prayer is effective not because of great men who pray, but because of a great God who graciously hears his people. It has everything to do with an extraordinary God and very little to do with us. We pray to a great God who in Christ graciously hears and answers. The end of the story, the prophet runs. And it's this bizarre scene, you know, Ahab, here's a a big storm, and it's just like coming down and lightning and thunder and... Out of the midst of that, Ahab and his chariot is frantic. And then Elijah runs ahead. Why is that there? I think my answer is, I don't know. (laughs) Partly because God is the kind of God who can make people run faster than chariots. But maybe there's a, a bit of a metaphor in there as well, that the priest runs, I mean, the prophet runs ahead of the king. The prophet, we said this a couple of weeks ago, the prophet represented the exact word of God. And that the word of God goes ahead of royalty. Of royalty. The word of God goes ahead of authority. The word of God goes ahead of the king. And really, this is God extending grace even to Ahab. I'm pointing you the way to repentance, Ahab. As evil as you have been, the fact that you've been more evil than any other king, and they were nasty. Even you, Ahab, have grace extended to you if you simply follow the word of God. What we'll see next week is that he didn't. But This is God's heart. God is extending grace. God is extending a road to repentance. That God's justice and grace are all the way through the story. And the same thing is extended to us. And that brings us very naturally to communion today. That at the cross of Jesus, justice and grace cross. I want to pick up one more thing as we go into communion. Back up on the mountain, it said Elijah repaired the altar. The word for repair actually means heal. That, God, that Elijah healed, he repaired, he rebuilt the altar. And he, he took 12 stones. And the 12 stones, the narrator says, represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And a couple of weeks ago, we had talked about how very, very soon after Solomon's death, that the whole kingdom of Israel was split into the northern tribes and the southern tribe of Judah. Ten and two. And that was not God's heart. God's heart, God's plans, God's... God's overall calling was for a united Israel as God's people who would be a blessing to all nations, a a nation completely devoted to God. And sin entered, and idolatry entered, and the kingdom split, and it was fractured spiritually as well as physically. And so Elijah, in rebuilding this altar, is coming back to this restoration of God's purposes and God's plans. And he calls it the altar of the Lord. And in the name of the Lord represents the authority of God. And then he calls down fire from heaven. And this has happened before. This happened when God filled the tabernacle back when the Israelites first came out of Egypt. The tabernacle was set up according to God's instructions, and then they made this sacrifice, and fire came from heaven. This is Levit- Leviticus, if you want a reference, Leviticus chapter 9. It was the inauguration of the temple, of the tabernacle, and fire consumed the burnt offering, and people fell on their faces. And then in 1 Chronicles 21, David is at this, this threshing floor, and he, he makes this, this altar to God, and he, he makes a sacrifice, and fire comes from heaven and engulfs the sacrifice. And David said, this is where the temple will be built. And then after David's death, Solomon actually builds the temple on that place and in the dedication service, in the inauguration of this glorious temple, fire comes from heaven and engulfs the sacrifice and the people fall on their faces and they worship. What does it mean when fire falls from heaven? It it means that God is pleased with this sacrifice. It means that God is bringing his people back to himself. This is the green light for repentance. This is the green light for atonement. And it all points to Jesus. That Jesus according to the book of Hebrews, is the once and for all sacrifice. That he took our sin upon his back. By his stripes, we are healed. So this Mount Carmel experience was just a foretaste, just a preview of another mountain outside of Jerusalem, Golgotha. And that's what we celebrate when we take communion. That this is, this cross, the sacrifice of Jesus, that is, that's the road of grace. That is the road of our repentance, of our returning to him. At the cross we see his justice, his wrath for sin because God can't, put up with sin something has to be done about it and god's answer to what can be done about sin was jesus on the cross so this is the offering this is this is the invitation this is the invitation to ahab this is the invitation to the people of israel this is the invitation to us